Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. This is Randy Kim, host and producer of this podcast. So continuing with the third season with the theme, Where Do We Stand? John M. She joined in as a guest for this week's episode, which was recorded on July 24th. John N. is the executive director with Illinois Raise Your Hand, a parent advocacy organization that organizes parents around systemic issues in education. Prior to that, he was a science teacher at Solorio Academy High School in Chicago and has been involved in community activism, which includes volunteering with Asians American Advancing Justice and actively working with black and brown communities on youth empowerment, education access, and anti-police brutality, among others. John Ann speaks about his leadership role with Illinois Raise Your Hand and their response during COVID-19 and the challenges that public schools in both Chicago and across Illinois have faced since the pandemic. We also spoke about his upbringing and how this would influence him to be involved in education and community organizing. Hope you enjoy my conversation with John Ann and that you can find ways to get involved. Special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Viet-American-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or t-shirt and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or on Instagram at lawrenceandargyle or on their Facebook page. Hi, everyone. So today I am joined here with my friend and guest, uh, John Ann Shee. Uh, so we connected about two years ago on social media, and I think it was through <laughs> Facebook friends or that you hey. know of. Yeah, that's, I think that's how we connected because uh, we connected through mutual friends. And a lot of our mutual friends are community organizers in the APIA community. And so I thought that was, oh, this is another cool person I can add and uh, observe. So in the past two years, I know that you have done just so much incredible work uh, starting as a teacher and then also going into uh, community nonprofits. You've been involved with Asian Americans Advancing Justice. Uh, You're currently the executive director of Illinois Raise Your Hand, a parent advocacy organization that organizes parents around systemic issues in education. And before joining raise your hand a year ago, you were a science teacher at El Solorio Academy, a neighborhood Chicago public school, high school, and you had taught for uh, several years. Uh, You had been living in Chicago for about four years now, and prior to that, you had lived in Boston. So I want to say welcome to the show, and John Ann, I want to say, how are you doing so far, especially in the wake of the pandemic? Yeah, thanks, Randy, for uh, bringing me on. It's funny that it took two years for us to really connect. Um, it's yeah. kind of it's kind of a reflection of 2020 in many ways, right? I'm doing okay during the pandemic, uh, given everything, right? I'm lucky enough to still uh, be paid. I'm lucky enough to still like not worry about not be housing insecure, right? Um, but this thing has been uh, such an exhausting experience for everyone, right? I feel like during a recent community organizing check-in, uh, they were like, how you doing? I just blurted out. I'm exa- like, I feel like I've been fight or flight mode for five months, right? And I'm kind of, uh, I'm a little drained, but uh, mm. 
but it's important now because, I mean, with the uprising, with COVID, it's just been really hard to find time to heal, right, and to recover and restore. And that's something that I'm not very good at. Um, and mm. so that's something, yeah, so hold me to it, I guess. I think, the, I think the community organizing and doing nonprofit work, even before the pandemic, can get so exhausting in that that when you see what's going on in the news, when you see current reactions, whether from the Trump administration or on a local level, there is an onslaught of barriers that are happening, uh, education fund, education defunding, and, and also heavy criminalization of black and brown folks. And when you see these issues come to light, you're in quick response mode. You, you have to mobilize. You have to figure out the responses. You have to think about the action plans. So it's a nonstop, uh, it's a nonstop thankless work that you're continuing to do. And I think that's something that many people who go into nonprofits would soon realize that this is the work that's never ending and it's, uh, and it's constant and you have to deal with the defeats. You have to deal with the, uh, the constant battles to keep going and to uh, push forward. So I was very curious, uh, what impact has the virus had on your work with Illinois Raise Your Hand in the past five months and also with the current state of education in Illinois? Yeah, so my job changed drastically um, at when the pandemic hit, right? Before the pandemic, we were looking at, oh, it's a month away before the local school council elections. We're gonna do all these different parent engagement things, uh, uh, these systemic issues in education like SQRP, the school rating policy, uh, SROs, um, uh, racial equity working groups. So we're planning like a host of programs, right? And then when COVID hit, everything stopped, right? We dropped almost all of our, that kind of program. And I kind of, I started, the first thing I, like the first value I carry during this time is we are physically distant, but we must be socially even more connected. So reached out to all of our uh, community-based organization allies, checked on how they're, like, what do they need? What do their members need? Reached out to our own folks um, and really just kind of got a sense of what is going on, right? And, um, and then from there, we responded in a few different ways. Internally, we wanted to make sure our staff was, they're all parents as well, and our board are taken care of. Um, they have what they need. Uh, but then we started doing a lot of different kinds of programming. So the first thing we did is we held weekly sessions for our special ed parents to, and to meet with advocates and other educators to talk about their experience going through remote learning and how COVID was affecting them. Um, and so that was really useful to kind of get, because for those students, they struggled the most during this time, right? Um, it was the least accessible. It was the hardest to... Uh, it's hardest to reach their academic goals, right? Um, and then we did the same with local school council. So we actually had 26 programs, weekly, pro, uh, so 26 total programs over 900 different folks. Um, so we just did a lot of listening and hearing and then taking from there, organizing out of that. Uh, we did a huge survey. We surveyed over 1300 parents to figure out how was the remote learning experience, what needs to be improved. And we, we released a report recently on that. Um, so those are some of the things that we've been doing in response to COVID, uh, but, and also in addition, outside of Razor Hand, like mutual aid popped up, right? We like in the Bridgeport area, we set up a mutual aid for Chinatown, uh, Armour Square, Canaryville and Bridgeport. And that was really exciting to be part of as well. Um, yeah, so those are some of the things. And ed overall education in Illinois, it was, I mean, you've heard the words, unprecedented, like 
no one, no, there's no playbook. So there, no one really knew what to do. And what I saw was the most stark was when there's no playbook, when there's no constructs for us to follow, people with power are just, you kind of like, they're just, you realize how human they all are. Like an alderman's office is just mm -hmm. four people or five people in a staff, right? Uh, a, the mayor's office is just 70 humans who are like, I'm sure they're smart, but they're just trying to figure out what do we do, right? And so uh, we are, the, one of the biggest patterns was the like inconsistent communication, really hard to kind of fill in. And what Razor Hand did was we kind of filled in a lot of those gaps, right? Help communicate to parents, this is where food is, this is how you can get it. If you need this kind of service, this is what you do. This is their hotline to call. Um, we did a lot of that hmm. as well. What is the uh, staff capacity, staff and volunteer capacity at Illinois to raise your hand? Because when you have, when you're dealing with a pandemic, uh, I mean, the schools are kind of like thrust into chaos and you are, are you the only nonprofit that's working with the teachers or are there several? Oh, absolutely not. I don't ever want to, no one's going to catch me on, on record saying that raise your hand is the work, right? Raise your hand is always sits in coalition with many, uh, community-based organizations uh, working on education justice, right? We're part of so many coalitions um, and mm -hmm. everyone was responding to education and family needs during COVID because that was the, one of the biggest uh, issues, right? Like checking on families and how they're doing with uh, housing insecurity or how they're doing with their, if they've lost income, right? Um, for sure, like we were in the very initial piece parts of COVID, we're looking at cash transfer systems, right? We're just finding ourselves in a lot of different spaces. No, absolutely not. I think it's just, it's hard because what you're just sharing is just a plethora of issues. I mean, you have to work with these parents who uh, have lost their jobs, but also kids who have losses in their family due to COVID-19. Uh, you're dealing with the PTSD that's emerging from this pandemic. It's not just losing your child, uh, losing opportunities to have a graduation, your birthday party with your friends, which are also part of your childhood, but it, it feels like a part of that childhood has already been taken away. On top of the way social distance learning is, the inequities of how it's constructed, uh, especially for those who don't have laptops or internet access at home, or uh, being in a safer environment to be at home for a good part of the day. So uh, when the schools were closing, they were considered safe havens for a lot of these students, especially in Chicago. So how do you try to manage uh, the transition for children who have used schools as a safe haven into their homes where it wasn't a safe place for them and where the access to learning and uh, getting access to the resources that they need how are they able to uh, manage that or as yeah, you're going so into like, year? yeah so the the pandemic was really uh, incredible at exposing our pre-existing conditions right are that when people say back to normal normal wasn't good for a lot of folks right and or normal was just barely hanging on and covid's just exacerbates those inequities, right? So you talked about the digital divide. All of a sudden now everyone like wants to like make sure our families have internet and technology, but they needed that for since from day one, right? Um, 
we need to kind of continue to look at those problems, right? This is the opportunity right now to look at, for example, the digital divide and look at long-term solutions, right? Um, for example, the Chicago Connected is about four years and it's providing all the 100,000 100, Chicago public school families with uh, internet, right? And that's great. But how do we build like maybe the platform now for internet as a public utility, right? How do we start? We have the opportunity to really correct some of our inequities in the past, right? Um, I think that's that's incredibly important, right? And there's nothing, I don't have a good answer for your first part of the mm -hmm. question, right? People die every day in Chicago from COVID. We've had, we have our parents who have had to put all of their, all of their kids in therapy, right? We've had parents who have experienced loss, right? Including like on our board and our staff, right? And so it's, there's not a good answer to say, how can we deal with it now? It's more about how do we continue to provide services? How do we continue to provide access? And then how do we kind of really try to change the existing inequities so that in the future going forward, that when we ever, what normal is, whenever we return to that normal state, it works better for everyone. And also uh, with, uh, so with uh, COVID-19, I, I wonder uh, what this next school year is going to bring up. We're <laughs> approaching fall uh -huh. and I want to know from your experience and also from your colleagues' experiences, how are you going to prepare for this upcoming school year? I mean, this, so, this whole summer, I can only presume, has been, has been having to debrief, long debriefs after this past school year, and then focusing on what could be a very uncertain, consequential school year with the Trump administration forcing the opening, the reopening of schools, uh, having mixed signals from Chicago and Illinois about how to uh, go about uh, the opening plan or the preparation of the 2020-2021 uh, school year. So I'm very curious yeah. as to what, uh, what you're currently working on as the school year is, is, is going to be underway soon. Yeah, so as you know, um, CPS released their initial, sorry, their preliminary framework last week, which said it, they are going to enter remote, um, sorry, hybrid learning for most of the population and like going full in time for cluster students, for folks in the pre-K program, and then 11, 12th graders are going to be fully remote. Um, and let's just say parents are very conflicted because parents did not like remote learning in many ways because it's super chaotic right everyone had to transition remote learning is not as easy as maybe people will think like oh i can hop on a zoom and i can talk to someone right it's a completely different pedagogy right and so uh it didn't work for a lot of parents and especially our most vulnerable students like our special ed students our english language learners but the issue is a lot of parents are not ready to go back right go back into the buildings um and a lot of that is around People, again, parents are seeing people die every day, right? And there's the data does not show that we are quite ready. And what parents want from C, and then it's also important right now to name that there's a, his, a history of a lack of trust between CPS and its community where it's, it's failed to deliver on things. So the metaphor we use is like CPS is asking all these parents to take a ride with them. And parents know better. They're going to be like, hey, I don't want to get in the car just yet. 
right? Got a lot of questions, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's engagement sessions next week uh, we're pushing for, um, excuse me, and, uh, and it's, it's going to be, it's going to be hard, right? A lot, our frame, our, our position is that remote learning should be our foundation and we need to improve it. We need that. Sh and cause his history shows and data shows that there's going to be a strong chance we go back to remote learning. And so if our foundation is weak. That's going to be tragic for like our parents and families. Right. But there's a real, like parents have to work, <laughs> you know, parents are essential workers. Parents, have multiple kids, right? Uh, for example, whenever I call one of my staff members, every single time there's an interruption, right? And so you can, that's just a small example of how uh, like the, all the different stresses that a parent is facing about the return to school model, right? Um, but again, the biggest, the landing point here is how feasible is it in six weeks to develop a hybrid learning plan that is safe for everyone? Um, and how can we do it with fidelity, right? Um, like the word airmark among parents is like almost like a, a curse word in the way like we just don't say that word because they mm. have been that comp that cleaning company has done that sorry that company has done such a terrible job in keeping clean schools clean before the pandemic right and mm. so parents are like there's no way you can spend a but in a budget neutral plan that you can show me that my schools are going to be clean um so a lot of our parents are going to opt to go into remote learning only um and a lot of our raise your hand parents will as well um, but parents are creative, parents are dynamic. So that some things we're supporting are like parents who want to form their own pods, right? Who don't necessarily want to go into school. It's like a, kind of like a mutual aid model, right? Mm -hmm. But they, with their local neighbors, with parents, um, who maybe are, they have, they send their kids to the same school to form their own learning pods in person, outdoors often, you know, in these dynamic settings. And we want to kind of always, uh, build parent power in any kind of way and kind of bring that to other folks. Right. And. Mm -hmm. So that's just one of the pieces that what we're doing to look at return to school, right? So still holding our special ed groups, stuff like that. So what could you say to people who are parents and also non-parents like myself, uh, who obviously don't have kids, but what can we do to help support uh, students, teachers, and, um, and faculty, especially in this really dangerous pandemic that we're growing that we're going into but how could we help to further uh the support help further the uh support that you're seeking right now so i think the root cause for a lot of this is economic pressure right parents need to return back to work um or the city needs to reopen is what we're saying right and so one of the biggest pieces is really like putting pressure on the federal government to print money right to make sure that we get the adequate supports we need because a lot of schooling is a part of schooling, sorry, is childcare, right? And if we don't solve like the underlying issues that what parents need, there's going to be such a pressure to return to school just so that they can uh, return to the normal cycle of life. So like putting pressure on the federal government to continue to provide supports, right? To continue to provide individual aid to all residents, right? Regardless of status, continue to provide how like in, I can't even know how many days, right? When the when the rent and moratoriums are gonna run out, run out, right? And so that continues to put pressure on parents to like, okay, I need to send my kids to school because I, we need to live, we need to survive, right? And so that's one big piece. Um, another big piece is supporting uh, a lot of the organizations that, uh, that we work with and our, our collective demands, right? And so that is the GEM Coalition, so that Chicago Teachers Union, uh, Raise Your Hand, obviously, COCO, BPNC, LSNA, I can keep, there's a, 
there are many community-based organizations that are developing a platform right now, but what are the conditions that are needed to return to school safely? So supporting those actions, um, August 3rd, for example, there's gonna be a mass action about, uh, actually nationally with all these different unions and different uh, advocacy groups and organizing groups. So those are two like broad ways, right, to do so. Um, and then getting plugged into mutual aid is really important as well, because that's how you can support parents who have specific needs, like a director, like a person to person support as well. In terms of safety and like the actual plan to return to school, I mean, it's just continue to amplify parents and teachers and youth demands, right? Whether it's to get cops out of schools, whether it's this amount of PPE, whether it's about class sizes this much, right? Because the current plan is not really, I, I wanna be clear, it's solid, but it's not very creative, right? And so it doesn't include pieces that solve for some of our long-term issues. So there's very few things that are, very few staff members are getting hired. There's not a lot of additional staffing, right? So we have a 650 to one counselor ratio. We're not gonna improve that in this current plan. And that can't, we need to continue to put pressure on to get more counselors, right? Especially during COVID, where there's gonna be way more like social emotional needs support, even co college advising support. Um, we are not hiring additional nurses, right? That seems outrageous during this time, right? Um, so those are some of the things that those specific platform pieces you can support and uplift um, because, because it helps parents and students now, but it will also build for stronger education systems in the future. Thank you so much for sharing that, John. And uh, I mean, these are very critical issues that uh, that you're exposing here. That these are issues that have happened for, during the, uh, before the pandemic, and the pandemic has basically just lifted uh, the covers off. And this is an opportunity for folks to make themselves be aware of what's going on and how do we exert pressure on local officials uh, to put safety first for. Uh, children, but also for parents who are essential workers or that are being forced to have to work or uh, or being forced to pay rent and 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 teachers who are constantly in danger having to protect themselves and a lot of these teachers are also immunocompromised and I know when I was speaking with Annie Tan who is a special education teacher in New York City. Yeah, she's amazing. And she talked about some of these uh, underlying issues that are going to put the safety of teachers and yeah. faculty at high risk. And there's been many deaths uh, no, uh, relating to schools. population nationally is uh, in the at-risk category, right? And so, and also so many teachers are also parents, right? And like, yes. I, as a, I, I used to be a teacher, right? And I can't even like imagine what my life would have been. It's like so hard to like think about the, all the things I love most about teaching are not through this digital interface, right? And so, I, and I can imagine like if you have three kids and they're on computers and creating your own schedule and then being sure you're taking care of your own students and then make, like managing your kids' schedules, right? Um, I, it's just an incredible, it's an impossible job, especially during COVID. Mm. So before you came into Illinois Raise Your Hand, you were a, a teacher, a science teacher for a few years. And uh, before we get into your work as a teacher, but I was curious about what led to your transition into community nonprofits such as Illinois Raise Your Hand. Um, I think a few different things. Um, I'm originally from Boston. Well, I'm originally from China, but I've spent most of my life in Boston, right? And 
I think I've really fallen in love with Chicago over the past four years. Um, I've been really grateful to have great people like some of our mutual friends really hold me and teach me Chicago's history, right? And what I find like incredible about the city is so many fucked up things happen to this city, right? Terrible things. But each time the city has this rich uh, habit and heritage of organizing comes out, right? that activism that, that pushes it. And I felt I've got caught up in it. I've learned uh, how to be an activist in this city. And that's, that was a major piece of me transitioning into uh, the nonprofit space, right? I didn't, to be clear, when I was looking, when I decided to transition, it was kind of my way, my expression of love for the cities. Like how can I view politics and policy as one, as ways to improve the city, to make it uh, serve everyone and not just the, the rich and powerful. Right. Um, and so to get there is a few different things. Right. I think I, I've been really grateful. I think you mentioned this. I've had a lot of, uh, let's say, organizing in civic homes. Right. And so from Asian Americans Advancing Justice to uh, Chicago United for Equity to BPNC with the work I was doing at Solorio, um, that really started helping me. Like before this year, I was engaged in all of these uh, nonprofits. For years, right? That really taught me how to to organize and how it taught me how to lead in different ways, right? Um, and so the two things I want to name here about what allowed me to transition into organizing is healing, um, and then the second is National Teachers Academy. Um, so what I mean by healing is uh, I was I in Boston. I thought the means to do the work was just to be a good damn teacher, right? Just remove all the gatekeeping mechanisms that students face so that they can get access and opportunities and improve their outcomes in whatever ways they want. Um, and I, I know when I was at Solorio, I still carried that, right? But I realized that I can serve in other ways. It's not just in my job. It's not just in the classroom. There's so many other ways to work, right? And I started organizing at my school around immigration. And that's kind of what kind of carried that snowballed into all these civic homes I've mentioned. Um, and so what I mean by healing is before, I don't think I could have done so without, I don't think I could be the person I am without therapy. Um, I think a lot of people can say that. I think that's great. And what I mean by that is um, organizing is about power and about uh, managing power, moving power, like, um, and, conflict, right? And it can be uncomfortable. And that's not the person I was in Boston. Um, I was, I tried to avoid conflict in many ways. And that's a lot of because of my upbringing, right? Uh, in my house, I was the peacekeeper, let's just say, um, I, I had to do a lot to maintain, um, maintain uh, safety and calm in my home. And I was very much always the one uh, I was always the peace ambassador in many ways. So I, I had enough conflict in my personal life that I was not looking for more fucking conflict, right, uh, in my external life. And so early on in college, I didn't quite get all the forms of organizing because I was like, why would you add more, like more pain or more, um, let's say, destruction into the space. But then again, uh, uh, there was a particular incident that happened and then that's when I decided to enter therapy. And through working with my therapist, I really understood more about where I was coming from and the boundaries I had with conflict. And I was able to manage that. And because of that, I was able to not just view my personal family life and like kind of transfer that 
discomfort with conflict to everything, right? Once I was able to understand that and be more comfortable in it, I was actually able to step into the, who I wanted to be as an organizer, right? And so that is like a, a skill that I've developed over time that allowed me to be. Um, a context that allowed me, uh, that allowed me to kind of transition from my teacher role was National Teachers Academy. So that was a predominantly black school in the Chinatown area that was scheduled to be closed to build a high school because, um, to build a high school there. And this, to be clear, was a level one plus, the highest rating you could get in CPS, was a successful school that was not successful because of its rating only, but because of how it treated its, its students. It had a really welcoming culture. It really built in racial equity at its core and they talked about it through, uh, throughout, right? And it was such a big symbol for me because I was living in Chinatown at the time. And I saw, I just view National Teachers Academy that fight as a ultimate symbol of white supremacy. Uh, when we were given false choices, right? Which was like, we only have this much money and it has to be in this space, right? Which is um, bullshit, right? People in power have found exceptions to this rule all the time. Look at Lincoln Yards, look at, what, like, look at all the new schools that get popped up because of political favors, right? Um, and so that was that. And then the sec in that was that all of these communities surrounding it, right? That, that school national and that Chinatown area is one of the most diverse communities around it in the sense that we have Bridgeport, we have Bronzeville, we have the Gap community, we have the NTA community that's right, that has a super small boundary, the Chinatown community, South Loop, and they're all kind of pitting, like white supremacy is when you pit these communities of color against one another, right? And so they're all fighting for these scraps, like, oh, we need this school because we gave TIF money, or we need this because we have such a need. And they didn't consider, um, they didn't consider that they were erasing these other students lot like these lot and like their history right and their education right and they were bearing black education in many ways right um and hearing that being in chinatown want like i used to live in boston's chinatown i love having the three schools there elementary middle like to see grandmas walk their uh youngins there like really like really resonated with me right because I, I i was raised in china by my grandmother but to want a high school there, to want our cultural heritage preserved and to have needs for that specific community are important, but at what cost, right? And it was doing it by closing down a successful uh, predominantly black elementary school, right? Which is racist. Um, and so getting involved in that uh, fight was actually how I learned about Raise Your Hand. Cause I started following it on Twitter. And I was like, oh, what is this parent group? And I just kind of started following more and then since I was already connected to Chicago United for Equity, I started going to more actions and town halls and that's how I started interacting. And um, that really, that whole fight really kind of taught me that there's like, I, that really energized me to continue to do this work outside of the classroom. I mean, <clears throat> I know that community organizing always stems from, uh, it stems from periods in our past, uh, our upbringing, uh, what we were taught. Uh, it taught us about what our parents, our families had to go through. As Asian Americans, I wonder what your family dynamic must be like, because you talked about being the peacekeeper and having to be the one resolving conflicts. But I was, uh, I was actually quite curious to learn about how your own upbringing actually did shape up uh, the work that you're currently doing because it always comes back to 
your home life. Uh, I know like even for myself as growing up with refugee parents, there was so much PTSD that I was growing up with. And then, you know, living in a predominantly white neighborhood, it was very hard to connect with with my peers, with my teachers who had no understanding about what my parents were going through. And I did not have the my parents' community that I had daily contact with to uh, to understand that what my parents are going through uh, was actually normal for all other Southeast Asian American families. So I was very curious to know about your own upbringing and how that actually conditioned you. And I know you touched on um, key aspects of what yeah. led you to organizing. Sure. I mean, it makes total sense when I look at it now, right? The two big pieces in my life that I'm passionate about are education and immigration, right? And which are central to my upbringing. So I, um, I was born in China. I was raised by my grandmother there in China. And um, I spent about five years there, six, sorry, six years there. And then I moved to Toronto to live with my biological father and mm-hmm. my, excuse me, and my godmother, who was a, uh, a client of my dad, my bio dad, right? And so it was a seven-year-old white lady, actually. And so they had taken care of me. And then and a, two, a few years later, I ended up moving to Boston to live with my aunt my uncle. And so I share that because, like, the two biggest factors that changed about me was my, my privilege in some ways, right? I went from being raised by my grandmother in China to, uh, like, living with my, just my, my dad and my, my godmother in some ways. And it was kind of a disjointed situation to then being in like, like the classic nuclear family in the sense that I have a cousin who I call my sister, right? Two, two parents, right? And who are able to afford to put me in class because they're like, oh shit, you don't speak English, right? Like we got to put you in all these courses, right? So my, my educational privilege changed, right? And it's a lot of, it's because of that where I, like I was able to access all these different other resources, right? I was able to go to college, right? I was able to go and um, even afford loans, right? That's a privilege in itself in some ways, right? And and so that is found, and that's why I became ultimately a teacher is when I, I did this program at Boston College called Personal and Social Responsibility, Pulse. And it really kind of framed for me, like, sorry, it really framed for me, like the different, like what the values that I got, it was like the world's greatest need meets your greatest joy, right? And it made me realize that I, when I was working with uh, young folks experiencing homelessness, often education was their way out. I worked at the GED center, right? It was one of their ways out, was to continue to access that. And that year really was foundational because right away after that, I quit my thesis, I changed my major, and then I looked into grad school programs uh, for teaching. And the second big piece was, I, I mentioned my immigration, right? I moved to three different countries. I've lived in 20 places in 30, in, I'm 30 years old. Um, and, and my status changed, right? And so I went from being a Chinese national to then becoming naturalized in Toronto to becoming a Canadian citizen. And then I, be, and I was undocumented until I was 16, right? And so one of the big pieces, like immigration, well, the, immig- being an immigrant is the biggest identity that I resonate with, I think. Um, but I was never really outspoken about it. I was kind of the classic narrative of like in the shadows, right? I was also the only one in my family with, without status. So um, sometimes I was used uh, in a way, right? And so I definitely, I never really talked about it, right? And, and that's also 
then turns into a, a privilege that I had because when I was uh, officially adopted in 16, 16 and a half, um, I, be, I, be, I got a green card, right? And so that really allowed me to access financial aid, right? Um, that allowed me to then enter this other pathway. And that's why I'm, uh, that's why when I got to Solorio, one of the reasons why I fell in love in Chicago was uh, being a faculty member with our dream team, which is our undocumented and allied students. And working and seeing their badassness, seeing them organize, seeing those youth, man, talk about healing. I was like, I, in some, we meet Friday mornings at seven, which is a painful time to meet. Um, but every morning, every week, Friday morning, a little bit of my old self healed, right? Which allowed me then to become more outspoken, more of an organizer as well. So I owe those youth a lot. Mm. And also like part of the purpose in seeing other Asian Americans doing activism work is also to dismantle the perceived silence of API folks. And I think that you just touched on this right now that we internalize our silence. Uh, we have a hard time seeing our home space as a safe, brave space for us to, to uh, deal with the uh, the constant, uh, the constant noise that we deal with on a daily basis. So, you know, you've gotten involved with organizations such as Asians American Advancing Justice and a number of API groups, but also uh, in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, how do you think that has affected API activism right now? Uh, and also you as an Asian American uh, living in Chicago? Yeah, so I, I'm, I mean, I keep giving reasons why I love Chicago, right? Um, and I think Asian American Advancing Justice is one of them. Um, it's one of the, it was the first organization I participated in where it was Asian Americans who weren't just, you know, doing social things like drinking together or doing just cultural things, right? Which I never, that never kind of stuck with me for long. Like in Boston, I participated in some of that, but it really didn't, um, it really, I didn't last. Boba hours. <laughs> what? Boba yeah, hours. exactly. Or like. I, uh, I avoided them. Actually, you know, like I call them like the, well, there's a new term called the Boba liberals, but that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> but I've always had a real, I've avoided a lot of Asian American uh, meetups back in college because it was so centered on bubble tea. Let's go meet for bubble tea. And it just felt reductive to me and it felt like mm -hmm. this is not the existence that I grew up in so I felt like I am not one of you all because this is not how I grew up so I felt like it it felt very one-sided like they felt there was API folks that I, that I was growing up with that or that I went to school with that grew up in mostly predominantly Asian American spaces where for myself it wasn't the same situation so it felt very clickish and it felt uh, very disconnecting but yeah I think that's a it's an interesting uh, point that you bring up because yeah Asian American activism when we were growing up didn't necessarily exist like even at UIC where I was an undergrad uh, it had a large number of Asian American students but yet they did not have an Asian American studies program uh, until I just left uh, that uh, in 2007 so yeah no, absolutely right. Um, and I also want to be clear. I'm sure there, were, there. I'm sure there are great groups in Boston, um, but I also maybe wasn't personally ready, right, from what I've shared with you guys um, about. So, definitely. Um, in response during COVID, what I've seen is I've seen a lot of 
excellent work done by mutual aid groups, um, whether it's in the Westridge area that serves a very diverse API, uh, sorry, API population, or down here in Chinatown where a lot of the community-based organizations and our mutual aid have been working together to make sure that we're taking care of our uh, highest needs people, right? Like Chinatown has such an old population, right? Folks who don't speak English, folks who speak not just Mandarin or Cantonese, but other dialects that are even harder to get to, um, harder to find people who can communicate with. And so the organizing around that has just been following the lead of folks who've been doing that work before, right? And so re like, for example, reaching out to the existing networks, doing like flyering, they like the Chinatown system, like so uh, Grace Chapman Gibbon um, set up these weekly meetings with all of these community-based organizations and allies in the space and elected officials and they held weekly consistent check-ins to figure out what do they need. And so we could provide things that were needed like infrared thermometers or more food or what, what like connecting services, right? Or running groceries. And while they could connect like the bigger food drops, uh, still like um, how to report anti-Black, uh, sorry, anti-Asian sentiment, right? Stuff like that. Um, and so that was some of the organizing that I noticed from the AAPI community um, during COVID. Mm. And I know, uh you know, given the anti-Asian hate crimes that have been escalating, uh, was this an experience that you and your fellow colleagues who are also of Asian descent uh, have been experiencing during this uh, pandemic? Um, not personally, right? Uh, I, I didn't really even go out that much, to be honest, during COVID, right? I was, I'm a workaholic. I, in, I'm, I'm trying to be more of a recovering workaholic, but uh, I was, during COVID, I it was a blur, right? I was just, in, I was in this seat all day working, trying to figure out what can we do to be better. Uh, it's definitely like during some of those calls though, there were, there were members that shared like, hey, one of my leaders got like cursed out or thrown something while someone was in the car, right? You see really disgusting comments on social media that really continue to silence uh, communities, especially a community like Bridgeport, which actually has a ton of Asian folks, but hold very little political power and very social, cap like hold less social capital, right? And so, that continues to silence those communities, right? And there are definitely then the count, there, there's like a movement to do counter narratives, right? To show like all the other work that Asian Arab Americans are doing now, stuff like that. And so, mm -hmm. uh, but not me personally. Oh, I mean, it's, I, I remembered uh, when COVID-19 first happened, I was kind of in my own bubble. Actually, I was more afraid to go out of the house mm -hmm. uh, because I was afraid of dealing with confrontations and also because I can be a very confrontational person myself too. And I also knew that I had to, protect my family in this and not get myself into trouble. But it also kind of tells you that Asian American activism is very much needed. And this is why we have activism in our communities because of moments like these that we do need to rally and be in solidarity to counter against the white supremacy, anti-Asian narratives that are happening. But with the COVID-19 pandemic, it also has transitioned into the recent protests against police brutality, anti-Blackness, but also how our Asian communities uh, uh, are now starting to confront anti-blackness, colorism in their communities. And this is a very important talking point here because uh, before I started the season, I was looking to focus on COVID-19 anti-Asian issues and the upcoming election, but then the murder of George Floyd happened. And then that also exposed what has been decades upon decades of anti-blackness from 
the Asian American communities, uh, where, whether it's on the model minority myth issues, whether it's on colorism, there's different factors at play here. But one of the areas is, or one of the things that I've learned is that it all starts with conversations with our own family members, with sure. our own close friends or digital spaces that uh, that we're involved in. But I was curious to know how can API activists engage in difficult conversations with our community on anti-blackness, colorism, and also connecting it to anti-Asian hate crimes. Sure. Um, just one thing about what you mentioned during COVID, um, I think, and this connects to this question is, that's one of the reasons, right, is kind of protect our community, but also COVID, like I hope during COVID, we can continue to organize Asians or Asian Americans around uh, being against white supremacy, right? Because these COVID reminded a lot of folks that no matter how hard you try, you're not going to ever be white. You're not going to, you're always going to be othered, right? No matter how, like, <laughs> that you're not fully American in whatever means, right? And so I think some, like there's a part of white supremacy is like this force of assimilation, right? And so I'm hoping that during COVID and like what we've, uh, we've done, we, continue, we need to continue to work on is getting folks to understand like, it's not actually like your pathway is not actually just to be more white, or try to be more white. That's never gonna happen, right? White supremacy does not allow for that. Instead, we need to build solidarity, right? And so one of the things that I carry with me is, right, none of us are free until we're all free, right? We need to be, I don't really believe in building, this is my personal belief here, right? I don't really believe in building Asian American power if we're not, uh, or if we're not really building progressive power, or if we're not really building power that serves all immigrants, or we're not really building power that also centers the historical inequities here around black and brown folks, right? And so that's really important, right? And anti-blackness is not just posting something, right? It's important to like be on social media and be very clear where you stand. But it's like these big, like this big campaign, like I just mentioned, like National Teachers Academy. I personally thought that was a great example of anti-blackness, right? In terms of we need to, we like this is, we are doing damage to a black community. We, this should not be allowed. And the fight to keep it open was that fight, right? And, and not just posting about it, but actually leveraging your power, your capital and your privilege to do so. Um, and it's hard, right? Like, and so that's, that's this work I do externally, right? But internally, you're right. That shit's difficult, right? To talk to family about this kind of stuff. Um, and I want to be clear, I'm not fluent in Mandarin. So I can't just pop in and be like, hey, let me tell you about white supremacy and systemic inequities. I have no idea how to fucking say that in Chinese, in Mandarin, right? Or like- And the educational privilege yeah. too. I mean, there's also an educational barrier with talking yeah. with- older Chinese American folks. Yeah, so you no, also absolutely. have to think about it from an educational standpoint on top of the language barriers, which is a very difficult, uh, which is very difficult to come across, especially for young API folks. Yeah, no, like it's hard. Like I want to be clear, like for me, it's also hard because of the family dynamics I've been hinting at, right? Um, it's more multifaceted for me and for everyone, right? And so it's, but it's, there's a, I think what you nailed is like, it's, it's a series of 10,000 conversations, right? I often, when I engage in conflict with my family around this, it's, if we get to a certain level, no one's listening to each other anymore, right? And so how do I continue to send information? How do I continue to kind of have these smaller conversations around this, right? Um, and I think there's this like fake bootstrap 
uh, bullshit that immigrants buy into all the time, especially ones like my family who's who could own a home, right? Who had certain economic uh, checkpoints, right? They like my parents even got a white fence because I'm sure they wanted that American dream, right? And so uh, the NIMBY, <laughs> not my backyard. Yeah, right. And so um, I think it's challenging that it's also like really making my parents reflect on their own racism that they experienced, right? And then connecting those patterns to history and education, right? And so you're totally right. Like white supremacy is not just interpersonal, right? It's not just hate crimes. White supremacy is like the air we breathe. It's the culture we breathe, right? And you can tell by the education that we're taught, right? My parents already had bias against folks of color as soon as they landed here because of the narratives that were being perpetuated in this country and nationally and internationally, right? And so they didn't have the full education that like, they didn't come in and be like, oh yeah, that's fucked up because of COINTELPRO, right? <laughs> that's not in the history books, right? Um, and that needs to be, right? Or the bombings in Philly, right? They don't understand there's been, or Tulsa, like there's been historic crimes, right? And so for my parents, understanding black history was like about slavery. Maybe with a lot of Americans, it's like really um, general and a blunt instrument, right? They're like, oh yeah, and now, they, and now when slavery ended, it's like whatever, right? And then so, now people are learning about Jim Crow, right? And now people are learning about all the other inequities that continue to exist, right? And personally, what's been um, most like uh, helpful is my parents were were in the healthcare industry, right? So they 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 did research, uh, cancer research, and other like like my mom worked at Children's Hospital for a little bit, right? And so, but those jobs they could never ascend certain ways because their English wasn't good enough, their degrees weren't good enough, right? All these things, right? And so, so the only way we, they were able to earn any kind of income, like, like stable income was actually through housing and through real estate. And that's where I was going to be able to connect with them the most, right? Because they faced kind of their own issues, but then I was able to explain what redlining is. And, to be, and that fascinated them because that was such a personalized example of how unjust the system was. Because if, they, they, if redlining existed for them in that capacity, there's no way our family would have accumulated any kind of um, privilege, uh, not uh, any kind of economic support, right? And so that was, so embedding history, getting parents to speak about, uh, getting my parents to speak about their own narrative, right? And like one area is really hard that it's, I'm still trying to crack on is state violence, right? My parents watch, I don't know about y'all, but my parents watch uh, CCTV, co communist propaganda TV all the time, right? And so, it's hard to talk about state violence, even though my dad's been re-educated, even though they lived through the cultural revolution, even though all these things that you, you would think like, oh fuck, that'd be really fucked up. And they would be able to translate state violence with the police brutality that's happening now. It's still hard for them. And like, those conversations are very difficult to still um, do because there's a lot of trauma they haven't processed on their own as well, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. And so that's also another area that I'm, I'm struggling to kind of engage my parents in. Oh gosh, I mean, you know, coming from families who yeah, sure. escaped state-sanctioned violence uh, with Cambodia and Vietnam, uh, what I've noticed in the Vietnamese and to some extent the Khmer community is the the, the perceived notion of what socialism is, and uh, especially with uh, especially with South Vietnam, I think people forget that South Vietnam was a very conservative, or well, it was then a country when it was separated. Uh, it was very pro-Catholic. It was uh, after the end of the Vietnam War, the resentment from uh, the North and, with, and the communists have been severely strong 
uh, especially mm -hmm. with elders who have uh, fled the country. And so having these conversations on anti-blackness and on you know, socialism and the Republicans is, is a very, very difficult topic to engage in. And, and it's something that we're still learning. I think that there's so much that we have to think about the educational disparities, language barriers, and also, also really finding connections, whether parents' history and current history, and, and, and seeing how this all fits into the mode of anti-capitalism or the harmful yeah. devices of capitalism, patriarchy, yeah. uh, white supremacy. Um, those are, it's not a conversation that could be done in one sitting. This is a conversation that as I've learned, you know, talking with folks like you, it's, it's gradual. It's a constant daily uh, conversations that you're having with them. And it, you may be able to pull them out of it. You may not be able to pull them out of it. But I think the effort is very essential. And it also, it, it shapes on how you talk to the community as well. And that's also, you know, by talking with your family, you start to find a way to think about how you talk to other community members about this. So I think there's a lot of power to, once you realize that, once you confront your own family on this and not, necessarily forcing them to change their mind but it also helps you understand where they're coming from and then hopefully that this will guide your discussions with uh, the community so yeah thank you for sharing and, that mm -hmm. and to be clear i need to learn my more history too right i'm still like it's an area that i like to learn more about asian american history like to learn more about the identity formation right all that i still need to do better on right and but i, I do want i would love to hear your like how that process has been with you and your family right because bring a different perspective, right, where well, you just mentioned references to state violence, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure those conversations are particularly difficult. It's, it's very hard. I, I'm not gonna lie to you. I mean, sometimes, like, my problem is my dad and I, well, we have two things. Well, we have one thing in common, for sure, is that we're both unyieldly stubborn. We are very, <laughs> uh, I think you've kind of sensed uh, who I am. Um, we're both doggedly stubborn and we both <laughs> want to be right. And we can be very self-righteous about things that we do know, but then realizing that our own self-righteousness can also reveal how little that we actually know, uh, how privileged I am when I'm making my arguments because my dad did not have the kind of educational background that I have now. Uh, because even though my dad is a very smart person, he just did not have the access to the education that he deserved. And so I think even talking with my mom, I think my mom can be more understanding, but it does take a lot of time. And my brothers and I were starting to get better in our conversations. Uh, my brother, Andy, moved to Florida. And, you know, for a long time, he, he had a very moderate to right-leaning perspective. But when he moved to Florida, especially with the pandemic, his views wow. have turned very radical, very quickly. Really? And I mean, I mean, gosh, some of the phone call conversations I have, is, <laughs> some of the phone conversations he's has is fucking Ron DeSantis, fuck Rick <laughs> Nelson, excuse my language, and, you know, fuck Trump. So, I mean, but he also had talked about the protests and something that we haven't talked about mm -hmm. in, at length in the past, but it was very interesting to hear his perspectives and, and his own frustrations with my own family members who support Trump in Florida, of all places. And 
and how that has also led him to walk away from his family members. And, and this is something that I have shared in my storytelling about the racism in my own family. And it's, it's still hard because you, because as you're walking away, you're also feeling as if you haven't done enough or that yeah. you just haven't gotten it right. And that's yeah. something I think about and it's affected my relationship with uh, my cousin's younger kids who I feel like I could be a better influence on that mm -hmm. I could get a hold of them. And that's something that I express regret in because I'm dealing with family members who have very self-righteous views that are not quick to, uh, to think about the humanity and, uh, and the views that they're expressing, uh, the lack of humanity in their views that they're expressing. So yeah, it is an ongoing conversation. I find this, this is an important area to explore because I mean, without uh, fighting for black and brown liberation, what is liberation going to mean for us? I mean, it's going to yeah. mean nothing for us if we aren't doing our part to eradicate uh, white supremacy and to call it out for what it is and to just, and to, ex and to uh, put the fires out. So, yeah. And also with the upcoming election, uh, how can, because we're in a census year right now, I know, I know you've done so much work, you know, volunteering for Asians American Advancing Justice, but I know you've also asked me to phone bank, which I have had to decline. I, I, can't, do phone, I can't do phone banking because it, it, it stresses the hell out of me. And, I, and, and I've done it before, but I mean, but you have Not yet. been so active. Oh, I know. I know you're going to still comfort me for that. Um, <laughs> but, but, there's, but you have created opportunities uh, you, to engage with APIA communities in your neighborhood. But uh, what are you seeing for this upcoming election? And, and how are you looking to engage folks to be civically engaged and to make sure that they have access to voting, especially in your role as an executive director for, uh, for an educational nonprofit and do your own previous work? Sure. Um, it's it's less in my current role, right? It's more what I do on the side, right? Um, one issue that I'm pretty, well, I guess, the, actually, as soon as I say that, I did, I'm gonna counter myself because the first thing I wanna bring up is fair tax. And that uh, like is a graduate income tax that allows us to start taxing the rich more, right? And, and fairly, right? And so that allows them, that will bring in, uh, gosh, I can't remember now, easily a few billion right away. And so, and those resources are going to fund what we all that support all of us, right? Our social services, our education. That's most the majority of our budget, higher ed, right? All of these things goes into the Illinois general fund, right? And so uh, I think most of my advocacy will not be uh, maybe candidate driven, but more issue driven. Like this is, I think this is an incredibly important issue for Illinois that we pass the fair tax, right? Um, and so Asian American Midwest progressives, um, the C4 of uh, AAAJ is doing fair tax work. Uh, before the pandemic, we were going, when we were going out for Teresa Ma and Marie Newman, we were also talking about uh, the fair tax, right? Like, and then doing cards to like send reminders because you need 60% of the voting uh, of voters to pass this um, into law, right? And so that's incredibly important um, for us to think about for folks in Illinois. Obviously the census is really important. I'm less involved in that based on just capacity, but um, a lot of organizations like Asian American Advancing Justice, like Coalition for a Better Chinese American Community, there are all these ways you can plug in 
for doing census work. Um, all, most of these groups are part of this group called pa this coalition called PAVE. Um, God, am I going to mess this up? Uh, Pan Asian Voter Engagement, I believe it's. I think you're right. I have. To, I think you're right on the mark, but. Yeah, yes. it's been a minute. It's how I actually found out when I first landed in Chicago. That's actually I like Google a shit ton, and that like that's what showed up. And that group allowed me to look at all these other groups, and I was able to like go to a fire workshop and stuff like that. Um, anyways, and so and voter access is incredibly important too, right? We this year we have access to get a ton of mail-in ballots, right? And then making sure people know about that. I, I have no idea right now how that's being communicated. Um, and so that's something as like my life right now is all work um, and very little other work. And so I've even had, I, like I've stepped back from the mutual aid we've set up, right? Be just because it's been so busy out here, we're back to school. Um, but if I find time, that's something that I'm interested in seeing how can we use like local, like local resources, like local groups, uh, like, uh, like nonprofits or the mutual aid to kind of talk about other movements, right? Uh, I'm less excited about the presidential, right? Obviously, it's important. Um, it's a massive, it's one of the biggest pieces of harm reduction arguments for political, for politics ever, right? Maybe. Um, and so for sure, right? And then I think in the, if for folks who are looking to get more involved, like the, I think the first few things I would suggest are define your organizing in civic homes, right? And just go out and listen and attend workshops, right? especially during COVID when a lot of things are remote, you can access things way, if you have the access, you can access it way more easily than before, right? I used to live in Hyde Park and do 10 miles up to AAAJ and that was a pain in the ass, but I did it, right? And so that's how, it took years to build that community, but there's ways you can do that now, right? Start, if it's, if there's, if it's the, uh, if you're interested in, there's so many different kinds of organizations to start joining and start listening in on how you can get more engaged, right? And that's what I would definitely recommend first. And then before you go in, like, there's so much energy you can get caught up in it. Just make sure you know what your values and intentions are of doing this work, right? How are you building power? Where, who are you going to center in this work, right? Are you just going to accrue power for power's sake? Are you going to become, our, like, I find it ultimately disgusting when I, when I see folks trying to establish their own Asian machines, political <laughs> machines. And like, what is the point of that, right? If you're not going to use it to redistribute power and wealth. And so making sure those two are aligned to have your grounding places to have your values and then to start and then to plug into like what makes sense for you now right like you have clearly told me that you don't like phone banking but there's other ways to engage right oh yes there's, there's social media work um i don't know if there'll be more rally like there used to be like census rallies i'm not sure what those are right now but um there's a way for everyone and i i hate like i push back on you right already but like i believe it's like not yet for most people right it makes, this thing may not like door knocking was incredibly scary for me right mm -hmm. incredibly scary because i was i was like a really shy kid early on and then teaching definitely broke and helped that but like to knock on strangers doors who could tell you to fuck off right which they have right um is hard to hear but i didn't start there right away right i started like learning about what this looked i saw i went with someone right i found in my specific homes my organizing homes i saw it being done i saw it modeled well started phone banking first, right? And then ultimately it led me to working almost full time for a mayoral campaign where that was most of my job, right? Was engagement with voters, right? So mm -hmm. absolutely. Uh, although I will settle on writing postcards. So I, I mean, if you need a writer, then, you know, that's what I'm here for, but I'm yeah, also gonna be, yeah. yeah. On the record now. 
<laughs> I know. I, although I'm going to be in grad school like this fall, so I know I'm going to be real busy. But um, at the same time, but yes, uh, for the record, yes. Uh, if you need my writing skills, that's where I am. You can knock on my door for that one. Or if you need me to write uh, friendly little postcards, although my handwriting is getting very illegible over the years. Uh, but uh, yeah, but uh, if you get me on that phone. Mm, yeah you know i've I've done i've done it for so long and i've done it you know for my jobs and it's like i mean i'm as talkative as i can be i'm also a very shy person i think i think i'm starting to like really see that like my shyness from my childhood had, does come back in waves and like as you said i mean we grew up fairly mute and and uh quite shy and struggling to find our voices so sometimes yeah i think that our own discomfort as you just pointed out in organizing work will come out of us uh many times but then we also have to work with our discomfort i think that you shared that real well that it's it's a gradual it's a gradual uh um i don't want to say confrontation but just it's a gradual build-up of how do we dismantle our own weaknesses and and use them as opportunities to grow as people so i think that's amazing what you're doing yeah and not just weak people have different abilities right and but there's everyone still can have a role in our political revolution right whether it's being a notary public whether it's uh really doing the connecting volunteers to volunteers right like i think you for example would be great at doing like a volunteer training right where you know people more right and you got you're leading a vibe right versus like a cold call to someone who is like completely different, right? You know, you have no idea where they lean, right? Absolutely. Um, there's all these digital resources you could, we can, with that need to be built, right? Um, infrastructure, resource guides, everything, scripts, right? Um, uh, everything, for sure. And also, in summation, what would you say to your past self as you were moving from Boston to Chicago? Because I know that you've experienced so much in the past four years. And, and also, I think the idea of self-care is always something that you're still working, actively working on, uh, even though it, it feels like, how could you rest in moments like these? But I'm, I'm very curious as to yeah. what would you say to your past self as you were moving from Boston to Chicago? Yeah, thank you for kind of inviting me on because it's helped me reflect a little bit, right? Um, because people who are so committed to the work, um, maybe see self-care as selfish, right? And that's not true, right? Well, first of all, burn your ass out and you're not gonna be useful to the movement, right? But also just reflecting on our conversation, the moments of healing I had made me more free, right? It freed me then then to be able to do uh, the, and do the work and, the, and get more involved in the issues that I care about, right? And so talking to my past selves, whether it's my high school self who was like quiet in the shadows, right? or my college self who was still like, who was really quiet, but like was getting less quiet, but like really trying to figure out where's my role in this world and do I actually belong in this space and can I actually make a difference in this space? It, my only thing, I guess my thing is continue to heal yourself, right? Continue to reflect, continue to unpack things, right? Because um, as a society we're growing and we're also always going through personal growth. And so continue to reflect and heal and find ways to heal, right? For some people that means therapy, for some people that means other, um, like the traditional therapy, I guess, and other, for other people it means different things. So I think that's been really interesting because I've, I used, I hate the word self-care in many ways, right? Um, and I'm not good at it. Uh, most people will say I'm terrible at it um, if you poll people, but um, it's really allowed me just to think about, I've become 
what I consider a better human, the more I heal. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing your journey in this work. And also, I hope that it also gives opportunities for people who are listening to think about how they want to engage. Uh, you don't necessarily have to be out in the streets. You don't necessarily have to be out on the phones, but there's ways to use your gifts, to use your privilege and to uh, use ideas. Just, I, I think that what, that the times of the current civil unrest, these are opportunities to think about how we contribute and there's no linear way of going about it. I think that's what we all have to remind ourselves that we, don't have to do things a certain way to get things done. I mean, there's little way of how we, there's ways that we could use our capital, ways that we spend our money, the way we, um, the way we take care of our community members, giving them space to heal, taking them out for lunch. I mean, those are very important little things that you can do to help preserve the movement, but also preserve the safety of our community. I think that's a that's a very powerful way of, uh, of thinking about what movements do mean. That it's not always just be out in the streets. It it goes far more than that. And I'm really thankful that you were able to share your journey with me. And and also, where can we follow your work? Or Illinois, raise your hand. Sure, uh, you can follow us. I haven't done this before. I can't believe I'm plugging like this. Um, we can follow <laughs> Raise Your Hand at IL Raise Your Hand, IL Raise Your Hand on Facebook. Twitter and Instagram. Um, it's the same handle. Um, yeah. And you can, and then our website is ilraiserhand.org. Yeah. And thank you so much for being on here. I'm glad that we finally met uh, digitally speaking <laughs> after like two years. I know wow. that we have tried to hang out in the past, but that has not happened. But I hopefully once the pandemic is ever over, I don't know when, maybe some boba. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we could do a boba if we're yeah. having these in, these kinds of conversations though that's for sure but and anyways yeah i hope that we get to connect soon but you know really the best of luck to you in your work with illinois raise your hand and also thank you for shedding light into the important work of teachers students or and the work that you do advocating for students and parents and and also really showing uh the nonlinear path of Asian American activism through your own experiences. So really thank you so much for your time. Sure. And, uh, and uh, I hope that everyone gets to follow uh, his work and follow the work of Illinois Raise Your Hand. Great, thank you for having me. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunmi Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunmi underscore chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you. Mm-hmm.